So I wanted to share something with you that I think was pretty cool from when I was nine years old, okay? You guys are already laughing. All right. Um, so when I was nine years old, I learned how to read and write in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. It's pretty impressive, right? Like, you should be impressed. That's pretty cool. Like, I, 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 I took a lot of time to study, and for hours, I just, like, poured over books to learn how to do that. And so, obviously, I didn't keep that to myself. I showed my classmates that, and they were like, ooh. And they would bring um, uh, Egyptian history books, like papyrus and, uh, and, and walls of temples with uh, hieroglyphics on them. And, and I would tell them exactly what it meant. And, uh, and, and I think they thought it was pretty impressive too, which is neat. Uh, the only problem though, is that I never actually learned how to read or write in ancient hieroglyphics, but all my classmates thought I did, or at least nobody called me out on it. And so they would bring me those books, um, with papyrus or wall or uh, temple wall, um, hieroglyphics. And, and I would quickly make up entire stories about Egyptian mythology based on what they brought to me. Uh, and so I learned at an early age what it looked like to be impressive. Now, sometimes it was by straight up deceiving people, and sometimes it was by, uh, by humble or not so humble bragging about it. And I would flex. I would show off like what I could do. And my hope was that if I showed you, then you would like me. Then you'd want to be near me. Then you wouldn't abandon me. Then you wouldn't leave me that we could actually have a relationship. But what I learned from an early age is when I would put up these projections, whether they were absolute deceptions, like reading in ancient hieroglyphics or, or, or something that I was actually good at, what I was doing was I thought that they were drawing into relationship, but actually every time it only furthered relationship. For example, with that one in particular, that meant that I had to hold up that lie as long as anyone was willing to ask me to translate stuff. It lost its fun for me really early on, but for me to continue deceiving people, it, uh, I, I didn't want to be found out. So I had to keep pretending. I don't know when the last person asked me, I was in the fourth grade, maybe in the fifth grade. Uh, but, but all that to say, what I, what I learned was that when I'm trying to be impressive, when I'm flexing for people, it creates a facade that you are now required to keep up so that you are never truly known. Because if you are truly known and you're actually found out to not be so impressive, then they could abandon you. They can leave you. They can think poorly of you. Now, I don't know at nine years old how much of this I could have articulated in English or ancient hieroglyphics. But what I realized is that in my heart, in my heart, what I learned in that was that keeping up the deception was never going to go well in relationships. Now, I might have known that as a nine-year-old, and you probably know that even right now, but but that didn't stop me from continuing to play out that cycle over and over and over and over again. And see, for many of us, we try so hard to flex for other human beings, right? Our family, our friends, our coworkers, our bosses. We, pro- we work hard to project this image of doing the right thing to the, in front of the right people 
And in doing so, that will provide us the right opportunities, right? Isn't like the way that our world works? We even do this with God, right? We try hard to flex for God, doing the right things so that he will reward us with whatever we believe that we desire most. I mean, I'm imagining I'm not the only person in the room that's ever had this thought. Something like, God, didn't you see the, all that I've done for you lately? Couldn't you give me X? Like, I'm not the only one, right, that's had that thought. Now, again, all of this flexing, all of this desire to posture and be impressive, that's fairly well in with our cultural context, right? I mean, our, our entire world is built on the idea that it's not enough to just do the right things, but to be seen doing the right things so that you're recognized and rewarded. That's the currency of everything, our world. Like this is, this is why we bring resumes in, right, into an interview process. And this is why our resumes are always just a little bit more polished than when we actually did was. Like I was a sandwich artist at Subway. And I defended that I was a sandwich artist, right? Like, like creativity job, check. The way I could make an Italian BMT, mm, so good, right? See, it's at this point, though, that we have to realize that these are not the kind of, this doesn't build relationships. It doesn't build depths. It's more of the relationship that you have with the vending machine. You insert your efforts and out pops, whatever your desires or whatever your reward is. Be impressive and others won't walk away from you. Be good enough and then others will think highly of you. Do this and then you get blank. But that's transactional relationships, right? And that's what I did when I was nine years old with ancient hieroglyphics. None of them knew what was actually inside of me, which is, oh man, I shouldn't have lied about this one, right? And what happened was if they thought I was cool, they thought a different version of me was cool. Or if I actually did know how to reach ancient hieroglyphics, which I'll still say I still don't and still didn't, then at best, that person that I was projecting, that may be actually things, skills that I have, that's what they like. They like something else, not me. But what if you're not impressive enough? Better question. What if you didn't have to be? Now in this homecoming series, we've been looking at the entirety of scripture, discovering the answer to a simple question that when humanity has continued time and time again to choose to walk away from our home with God, what length is he willing to go to bring home to us? And so last week we talked about the tabernacle, God's tent that was set up so that he could go be with his chosen people, the nation of Israel, while they were on their quest to the land of promise. And so th what this was supposed to be was God's physical presence in the midst of the people so that they would know and experience nearness and peace with God, that the creator was in their midst. But even within the tabernacle, even with the tabernacle, the Israelites didn't do a great job at being grateful for God's presence in their midst. Instead, they tended to use God more like a lucky rabbit's foot, like a pass that they could do whatever they wanted, but because they have the lucky rabbit's foot, then, then things have to go their way. And, Time after time, it's proven that that's a bad idea. They continue to trust themselves and their feelings over what God has revealed to be true. And they try to weaponize God and use God, have a transactional relationship with God. 
And so their journey lasts a lot longer than it was supposed to. It goes from being four, a few months to up or to 40 years of wandering in the desert because God said that they weren't ready to go into the land yet. And after 40 years, they do make it into the land. And they begin to make themselves at home. So they begin to set up farms. They begin to build homes and villages and entire cities eventually. But God said that unlike all the other nations around them in the ancient Near East, they would not have a king or queen ruling over them. Instead, he says, I would be your king. That he will be the one who is present with the people, guiding, protecting, and shaping them. So you don't have to be like the other ones. You got the true king here. But eventually the people clamored for a king all the, all the, all the same. And they wanted to be like the other nations. And so eventually God relents and they, and, and they get a king, a guy named Saul. And a lot of craziness happens in his story, which ends up making way for another king, a guy named David, who you might have heard about before, um, circa fame of David and Goliath. And then comes David's son, Solomon. Now, David was an interesting fellow because the scriptures say that he was a man after God's own heart. And he, in his heart, even though he's a a very flawed human being, he desired to express a great desire to build God a permanent dwelling place amongst the people in Israel. This has now been a few hundred years since the people were all living in tents. They're now in homes, and but still, God is dwelling kind of in a in a tent out in the backyard. And David hates that idea, and he's like, "No, let's bring God into our midst." Let's build him a permanent space, not to impress God, but to just be a whisper of how worthy he is. Now, the task isn't executed by David. It goes to his son, Solomon, and he becomes a project manager in the building of this ancient temple. And that's going to be the focus we're at tonight in 1 Kings chapter 8. So if you want to go ahead and flip there in your Bible. Now, We're going to talk tonight about the temple, but this connects to what we talked about last week, the tabernacle. Now, the main differences between the tabernacle and the temple, if if you're curious, is the the scale, the size, and the permanence of it. Essentially, those are the only changes. Everything else, the form and the structure, uh, is just the exact same in, in, in essence, but it is expanded to be more permanent and expanded to e- be, even be more honoring of who God is. Now, there are three elements that we're going to, there are three elements we're going to dig into tonight um, that were also effective for the tabernacle, but we didn't touch on them last week, so I want to hit on those because it's going to be important for specifically when we look at the temple. But, for the temple, if we can go ahead and bring up that image really quick. There it is. Okay, so this is what the temple apparently looked like according to this artist's rendering based on 1 Kings 8 and um, 1, Chronicle, 1 Chronicles as well. So what we have here is this is the outer courtyard. So remember when we talked last week about the tabernacle, there are three spaces. There was the outer courts, the, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And that's what we get here. So outside where the brickwork is, that is the outer courts. There was a wall that went around the entire temple area. And, then all, and that's for all of the nation to dwell. But not only the nation, but foreigners would have been allowed in into the outer courts who happen to come in and they want to worship the one true God. Now, where it gets gold, that's inside. And that is the holy place. That is a space reserved exclusively for the priest to go. 
But then you see that staircase and up the staircase where you see uh, the two angelic messengers there, that is the Holy of Holies. And that was a space that only on one day a year, the high priest of Israel would go through a crazy uh, long purification ritual to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and Yom Kippur to be able to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel. So this place was epic. It was filled with the same Eden imagery of the tabernacle, like times a thousand. So you'll see not just one menorah like the tabernacle. There are eight menorahs, or, I'm sorry, 10 menorahs, five on each side, I believe. And those menorahs were supposed to symbolize the tree of life in the garden, place of God's own life. That there was just so much wonder and beauty in there. All of these, the royal gold to to say that this is a space actually fit for the king of kings. It was made with the finest woods in the ancient world. All of it, not to impress God, but to simply be a whisper of how worthy he is. But with all this wonder and beauty, God doesn't fill the temple up until something unique happens on the day of its dedication. So this is opening day in 1 King chapter 8, starting in verse 6. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the, in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. Now, let's keep going a little bit further. Verse 10. And when the priest came out of the holy place after laying down the ark of the covenant in the midst of it, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand and to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Okay. So this is a really powerful moment. And I don't just mean an ancient powerful moment. This is a powerful moment, not just for the people of Israel, but for all of humanity. God's presence is dwelling with his chosen people, Israel, who weren't there and weren't called to be chosen just because they were so awesome and wonderfully unique. They were his chosen people because he chose them. And to be a nation, not just a nation with priests, but we actually discover in the Old Testament that they were intended to be a nation of priests. That all of them would be mouthpieces to the world of God's wonder, bringing in the rest of the world to discover the wonder that is the creator God. They're called to operate as ambassadors of God's presence to the world. And so now think of all the impressive stuff that the people of Israel had to do to bring this temple into fruition. They overlaid it with all the best goldsmithing around. I, literally, it was so beautiful and so shiny that you could see it from miles away in the distance. The most ornate artwork was what comprised all the different, all the different hand carvings in the, throughout the temple. And then you have King Solomon present in this space. King Solomon is there and he is considered to be the wisest person in human history. And at this point, he is the wealthiest person in all of the earth. And then you have the priests who are ready to make sacrifices before God. Has anyone ever shown a greater opportunity to like show off for God? Like show how awesome they are for God, to flex for God. I mean, they were pretty impressive. But God's glory doesn't come in with the jewels, the furnishings, the priests, or even the king. 
See, it's not that humans weren't doing anything that was impressive from our vantage point. And human beings, we are capable of doing things that are impressive to one another, right? Like we can build tall buildings. We can create beautiful works of art. We could create beautiful baked goods and, uh, and, and artwork in the kitchen. We can enjoy and be in awe of the beauty that we can create, which is so good. And that's from our vantage point. But then you have God's vantage point. See, what they weren't trying to do was impress God in the space. They weren't doing all of this so that God would go, wow, you guys are so good at putting stones on top of each other. Like, I mean, God created atoms, you know, like, like what, what's going to impress him about this? It's kind of like when we talk about Ebenezer stones, like these, these stone on top of stone on top of stone. And in, there's a stone of remembrance. And, and you're like, I mean, what does God actually think about that? You know, he's like, whoa, you guys can stack. Good job, you know? Like, not that God is looking to uh, talk down to us, but, but just that idea, like, what could we possibly do to impress the God of the universe? But see, they weren't trying to impress God because that only creates further division in relationship. They were trying to honor him. And see, honor brings in relationship. See, they didn't see God as some cosmic bending, bending machine, right? Here's our efforts. Now, God, you have to show up. They tried that before and they will try it again. But this reminds me of Abby, our two-year-old. She loves to help us out in every way she can and in every way she can't. Um, she's really good at those things. And uh, she loves to help with breakfast. And so she likes to crack eggs. And actually, she's pretty good. She's like at a 90% success rate of, of most of the egg making it into the bowl and very little of the shell making it into the bowl as well. Um, so it's pretty impressive. But while it is quite impressive for a two-year-old, mere alley doing it would be much more efficient, right? Like that's fair to say um, that we are probably a little bit more adept at cracking eggs into a bowl than Abby is. But that's not a better option if what we desire is to be present with Abby, to teach her, to discover with her, to participate with her. If, if we were to crack the eggs and tell her, go watch TV, what we're not doing is inviting her in. That would be the worst way to do that. See, Abby is a very real participant in those kind of moments, and we delight on having her in the kitchen. But ultimately, she's not putting breakfast together, right? We're doing the heavy lifting, but we're inviting her in into the story with us. And see, this is what it looks like when his presence arrived in the temple as the Ark of the Covenant makes its way into the Holy of Holies. God's presence doesn't show up because we wanted him to, because we forced him to, or because he had to. That's not how God's presence works. He shows up time and time again in the scriptures and specifically in this moment because he desired to. He desired to. And as the presence arrives with the Ark of the, the Covenant, um, if you want to go ahead and bring up that next slide, this is what the Ark of the Covenant roughly would have looked like. And this Ark of the Covenant is is this, this uh, box that is containing the tablets of God's own word. And then it's topped with the, what's called the mercy seat and these two cherubim that are sitting on top. These are angelic guardians who you might remember if you hung out in Genesis chapter 3. Cherubim were put in front of the garden with his, their backs facing the garden. In other words, they were looking out to the rest of the decaying, falling world. 
to ensure that humanity could not make their way back in on their own. But here, that's not the position that they have. These cherubim that were created of gold are facing down in a posture of worship towards God, towards his presence. And it's a posture not of holding people out, but of inviting people into the presence. See, when the ark enters into the Holy of Holies, the cloud then descends, which leads the Israelites through the, that which had previously led the Israelites through the wilderness has now come near to a temple made by imperfect hands, but comes all the same so that he can be with them. God was bringing home to Israel. He was bringing home to the world. Not because he had to, not because he should, because he wanted to. He desires to be present with humanity, not just then in that one moment, but today. And so Solomon begins to move on into a time of speeches and prayers in verse 12. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. That kind of sounds like Solomon thinks that he's kind of impressive, right? Like on first reading, you're like, wow, he, he thinks he can kind of like, like it's a God trap that he can contain God in a physical location. But if we keep reading, verse 22, we realize that's actually not what's going on here. Verse 22, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And here's what he said. O Lord God, God of Israel, there is no God like you. In heaven, above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walked before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, when you declared declared to him, you've spoken with your mouth and with your hand, have fulfilled it this day. And so we start already getting this image that God is beyond. Like we talked about last week, this is God's beyondness. God, you are so incredible. You created the heavens and the earth. Nothing can contain you. And so then in verse 27, he continues, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant, to his plea. O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, this place of which you have said, my name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayers that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people, Israel. When they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, And when you hear, forgive. Solomon knew just how insane it would be to think that he could somehow impress God with stones stacked on top of one another. His beyondness is beyond human comprehension. To try to fully say, like, I have a God trap, I'm going to catch him, would be like getting an empty soda bottle, going over to the ocean, getting it full with ocean water, and say, aha, I've captured the seas, right? Like, like you have nothing. You understand nothing about the ocean. What you have is water, right? Like you have just a little sample of all the expanse of it. And that pales in comparison to God. 
It would be ridiculous for Solomon to somehow think that he trapped God in this space. But God has brought his presence near to his people in a geographic space. It's insane. It doesn't mean that God stopped being omnipresent. It just means in a unique space, in a unique way, he somehow becomes hyper-present. And so Solomon goes into praying for God's presence. But, he doesn't, but now he's not going to move into just praying about things that are all rainbow and sunshine. Like, let's, God, would you just keep this moving? Like, we're really gelling here in worship with you. Uh, let's just keep it that way forever. Solomon knew the story of the past. He had seen the story of his father. And he had reason to believe that the story would continue of humanity's brokenness. And so he gives some fairly real world scenarios and why God's presence would hopefully never leave them. He says, if a person sins against another neighbor, he says, may your justice reign in the scenario by the guidance of your presence. He then says, if Israel's army is defeated in battle, because it has been discovered that they didn't lose because they were just beat on the battlefield, they were beat because they have sinned against God and he wasn't going to care for them in that battle. But then they were turned back to God in repentance. He says, God, may your, may your presence demonstrate grace. He says, if a drought or pestilence or famine overcome Israel and the cause is because they have abandoned God's presence, may his presence come close to healing all that is broken in the land and in the hearts of the people. Solomon's being a realist here. Trans, the translation would be something like, God, we are forgetful, rebellious, prideful people. I mean, let's not sugarcoat it, right? We need you desperately. Would you be with us in the midst of our desperation? Now, this isn't exactly like a pep talk kind of prayer, right? Like if you're the rest of the nation, you're hearing this prayer, you're like, okay, you know, like, like this doesn't make you feel super um, encouraged about like yourself, but it should make you very encouraged about the God who is dwelling in their midst. What Solomon is doing is he is simply acknowledging what is painfully obvious for each human being since the garden, even though we try to ignore it, even when we try to suppress it, we are a people in desperate need of God's presence. Here's what's so good. God is not seeking to be vengeful, angry. We discover in the scriptures he is slow to anger, filled with abund abundance and unbelievable patience. But God has also expressed his willingness to give the people what they ask for when they ultimately want to rebel and run away from his presence. And we see this in 2 Chronicles 7. You don't need to flip there right now, but it records God's presence or God's response in prayer. He says to Solomon, I'll be patient. Absolutely. But if, if y'all really want to live like the other nations, if you really want to worship their false gods, if you really want to do things their way, if you really reject and don't want my presence, then I'm not going to hogtie you to what is best for you. I'm going to give you the freedom to fall. That's hard, right? Recently, we had some cookies on the counter. I'm sorry. My kids are so young. They're like filled with stories all the time. Forgive me. Um, 
but recently they had cookies on the counter and Asher asked if he could have one, but it was about to be dinner time. And so we said, we're actually going to eat those for dessert after dinner. And, and then we got a thought and we were like, this would be a good opportunity. Let's see how this goes. So we went for it. And we said, Asher, you can make decisions yourself. You can choose to eat the cookies right now. Both of them. You have two cookies. You could save one for later. Eat one now. Or you can save both and eat them with the rest of the family after dinner when we're going to enjoy them together. And so he said, I will wait until after dinner so that we can enjoy the special treat as a family so that we can grow in intimacy as we no, we didn't say that at all, right? Like, of course he didn't say that. He ate them so fast. I thought he was going to choke. And so then dessert time comes around and he is pretty upset that we're all eating milk and cookies and he has none. A parent's job, or so I hear, is not to simply force a child over and over again to do the right thing, to make the right calls but to equip them hopefully with the tools over time as it's age appropriate to make the right decisions as they grow. So that over time, they have the freedom to choose and to experience the natural consequences of their actions, both positive and negative. Now that's disappointing when it's about cookies, right? But it's devastating when it's the nation of Israel choosing their way over God. It's devastating when it's me and you choosing our own way over God's. See, this desire to choose our own way over God's is what led to the institution of animal sacrifices. This is, oh, was a regular reality in the tabernacle, but now it becomes a part of the temple as well. And so this idea of sacrifices is something that for us, we're like, oh, that's, I hate that. Like, I wish that wasn't one of those things you, you wish wasn't there in the Bible. You know, as part of these opening day festivities, Solomon makes a sacrifice for the nation of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. It's a lot of animals, right? Now, if you're like me, you hear those, those numbers and you're like, would one of each not do the trick? Like, like, whoa, it, it's a, it's offensive to our modern way of thinking, right? Because we don't have context for this. Instead, what if you're like me, what you typically visualize when you think of something like this is we visualize animal sacrifices that are uh, the, the senseless death of a bunch of animals to satisfy some cruel and sadistic deity. And then you either burn up all of the meat or you kind of chuck it out afterward. Now, for many cultures, that's exactly the case. But in Israel, this was a vastly different paradigm regarding the various sacrifices that were meant to be made throughout the year. Now, on certain rare occasions, such as the Day of Atonement, there would be something called a burnt sacrifice. In other words, it was one particular animal, uh, typically the unblemished lamb, that was offered up as a substitutionary sacrifice by the high priest on behalf of all of Israel. A perfect animal sacrifice to remind Israel of the depth of their imperfection, to substitute on their behalf. But here's what's crazy. Almost all of the other offerings that are made throughout the Old Testament of the Bible were only partially consumed in flame, such as the 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep in this. So what we read in 1 Kings 8 is what was burnt up in the burnt offering is um, 
a grain offering, an original burnt offering, and then the fat pieces. Other words, in in their according to their taste buds, the tastiest portion of the meat. They those things were burnt up. The best parts were given to God. But do you want to know what happens with the rest of these a great amount of animals? Well, we discover it in verse sixty-five. It says, so Solomon held the feast at that time and all Israel with him. He was bringing in catering. He was bringing in catering. And that doesn't, that doesn't diminish the sacrifice, but actually reveals what the sacrifice is about. God wasn't like, I just like to see a lot of my dead creations around, you know? Like that's not God's heart. Instead, what this was meant to do is as these sacrifices were made, that it would symbolize to the people the costliness of their sin debt. And then it would be a reminder of their new communion with God and with one another as they would feast together. See, sacrifices weren't just wasted deaths of animals. It fed, it, it fed the priests, and that was how they got a lot of their food, was through sacrifices made daily. It was made for families. So if like you went and your family sacrificed a dove, then you would be handed back the dove and you guys could consume it together. And it would feed the entire nation when they would come together a few times a year for the high holy days of Israel is they would have these annual feasts. In other words, the, the sacrifices weren't arbitrary, but were an active visual of both the death debt and God's presence, not just with you, but with us. That on our own, we are impure and unholy, and unholy, covered in mud, unfit to enter into God's presence without being consumed ourselves. But that doesn't stop God's desires. He desires to be present with humanity, not because we're really good at flexing, not because we're the most impressive things imaginable, but because he is just that good. See, this is what the temple was made to reflect. It was a place filled with the tension of God's kingdom and planet death. Filled with two complete, um, competing senses. Literally, uh, if you would have went, if you were a priest, I was not a priest either. So none of us are priests. But if you happen to be a priest and you went into the holy place, you would smell the incense and the perfumes that were constantly going throughout the day. And that was to symbolize the sweet smells of the garden but you would also smell daily the unmistakable stench of blood. Life and death, the tension, it's right there. It's like palatable to remind the people of the ultimate cost that was going to be required for any shot in humanity to get back to a place of intimacy like the guard. See, Solomon was under no illusion that not him or any others after him would be worthy of making their way to God. That it was going to be God who would have to make his way to them. And so then he offers this beautiful blessing in uh, verse 57 and 58. This is so good. All right, check this out. The Lord our God be with us. So he's giving like a blessing over the nation. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him. Isn't that beautiful? That he doesn't leave us so that our hearts, he would turn our hearts. Not that we turn our hearts, but that he would turn our hearts to him. 
to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Solomon's desire is that God would remain present and by his presence, as we are with him in his presence, he would purify us, turning our hearts towards him. Now that's a really beautiful prayer. But when you look at the trajectory of the nation of Israel after this, it doesn't play out super well. It doesn't even play out well for Solomon for the rest of his life after this. They became a micro story of the entirety of the human story. Constant attempts at doing things our own way. Just like our ancestors in the garden, they chose to define good and bad on their own terms rather than allowing their hearts to be formed as they rested in God's presence. And so one day, just as God promised, his presence left the temple, which would soon after be destroyed and the nation of Israel would be carted off into exile. You want to live like the other nations? I'll let you. You want to see where your way gets you? I'll let you. Now, eventually, one of the impressive nations that rules over them allows a remnant of them to return and to rebuild their land and their temple back in Jerusalem. And at first, it was a pitiful version of this ancient marvel. But 40 years before Jesus, King Herod uh, used a bunch of money to rebuild the temple to be really, really beautiful. But his heart wasn't in it for the right reason. His goal wasn't to draw near to God. It was to be impressive to God and to one and to everyone else. And we know that because what he ends up doing is he adds renovations that completely miss God's heart. No longer would everyone be allowed to go into the outer court. That was for all the nation of Israel and foreigners who would come into the place. No, they had a new segment at off courts, specifically for women, for foreigners, and for others. There were spaces that they could, that these different groups had to stay in. In other words, what he was doing was he was making it even harder to enter into God's presence because that was his heart. He wanted to be impressive. He didn't want to honor God. And it simply reveals how far away his heart was. Now it's at this point, it's fair to ask, will God abandon humanity once and for all? But just then, just when it seems all hope is lost, a temple is built and it's beautiful. They're under Roman occupation though. And God hasn't spoken in years. But then God's very own presence takes on flesh to tabernacle with humanity. Not only to be the true and better temple, but also taking on the role on the other end of the ultimate and final sacrifice on the cross. Perfectly innocent blood shed so that you and I could come to know him. Not a version of him, not a far off distant experience of him, but know him. Experiencing his presence, feasting with God and with one another now and forevermore. Our long awaited home that we could not make it back to, he has brought to us. Not because we flexed in front of God and impressed him, but because for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. You can't impress God. You might be able to impress other people. You can probably impress me. God did all the real work so that you don't have to. So you can't, because you can't, 
because you can't even begin to attempt it. We think we need to be impressive. We think we need to flex and to show off to be noticed by others. Putting on filters to every aspect of our lives so that somehow we can be considered worthy. That we won't be abandoned. But I like how Tim Keller said it, that what we discover in the gospel is you are more sinful than you could dare imagine. And you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare to hope. Hope beyond anything and everything. This is what we have in Jesus. This cannot stop God's love. He is uncontainable and yet he allows his presence to be with us. God loves us. God loves you. Right where you are. Not some other version of you. Not some future version of you. Not the best version of you. He loves you. So much so that he already put the lamb on the sacrificial altar for us in his own son. And so this is really good news because if you are tired of performing, if you are tired of trying to flex to be impressive to other people or to God, then you can drop the act because what I can tell you is I know it doesn't work. And I'm not just saying that because I'm the guy on the stage. I'm saying that from personal experience. It never pays off. At best, you impress. But every time, there's a relational cost to it. But with God, this is what we have. Now, you may have doubts and questions about all this Jesus stuff, and I think that's totally fair. And I'm not here to convince you of any of this, because thankfully, I don't think I'm good enough to persuade you of any of this either. But is there a part of you? Is there a part of you that's sensing that longs for this to be true? That you want this to be true? That you could dare to hope that it is true? Because if you begin to truly desire this to be true, you might just move on to the point of believing that it is actually true. And if you can do that, then you can live in the space of realizing that you are now sufficient, not in yourself, but in the one who is now dwelling within you. That you don't need to be impressive because his, his presence will not leave you. You can't outrun his grace. But we do get to respond as Paul would write in Romans, is a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I'll close with this. I recently met a friend. Um, uh, he is a part of Cast Member Church, which is another local church that ministers to cast members. And I was chatting with him about um, what he has been doing and what he's been up to. And I discovered him and his wife moved here um, from up north and they moved down here even though he had a comfortable job as a pastor of a church in um, up north and he moved down here specifically because he believed God wanted him to lay down everything else and go and just be present with cast members and reach them for the gospel and and when I was talking with him I discovered that his desire is to get become a status coordinator in his role uh, he's in quick service food and beverage in Magic Kingdom and his desire is to become a coordinator now he said, though, that his desire is that he will never be promoted above coordinator. He wants to stay in that role for as long as God would allow him to. That he could be present with as many cast members as possible. His joke was that he wants CPs that he sees now to come back in a decade and see him in the same spot. 
And I like that. I like that a lot. See, this is the story that God invited them into. It's encouraging and life-giving. And honestly, I love to hear what God is doing in other churches and ministries here in our area. But this story and what they believe God had called them toward is what God called them toward. And this was what it looks like for them to live as a living sacrifice. So in other words, don't do what they're doing. Now, maybe, maybe it's exactly what you're supposed to do. But this doesn't mean that now none of us can pursue advancement at Disney or whatever else you might be dreaming of, right? But So don't do what they're doing, but do exactly what they're doing. Saying to God daily, I surrender everything to you. Here is the blank check of my life. Not my will be done, but yours. I want to invite the band to come on up. Because here's what's so beautiful about that. Is this is a you thing. It's you a part of all of us. That we each have a part to play in this cosmic story that God is telling. But see, no longer are there death sacrifices needed because Jesus was that. But now we get the opportunity to be living sacrifices, saying you get everything. You get all my thoughts about my work. You get my thoughts about my friends. You get my thoughts about my roommates. You get my thoughts about politics and social issues. You get my thoughts about all of it. You get to call the shots. This is what we get to do. It's a get to. It's a beautiful reality that we are called into. And so my hope and my prayer for you, and I'd love to pray for all of us tonight, is that this would be exactly what we'd step into. A space of just openness before God. Because you could pray this prayer tonight, but by tomorrow, you'll have to pray it again. Hour by hour, day by day, minute by minute, by month. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for what you are doing and have done in the person and work of Jesus. That while it is so beautiful that there was a temple built where, where your people could worship and honor you, where you could be present in their midst, you've now upped the ante. You've pushed it to the limit, being present with all those who would come to follow after you. So I pray, Lord, right now for anyone here that doesn't know and follow after you, that you would begin working in their hearts even now, that you would draw them near to yourself, that you'd bring them to saving faith in the person and work of Jesus, trusting not their efforts or their need to be impressive, but trusting you and you alone. And Lord, I pray for each of us who are here that do know you, that do follow you, what I know about all of us is simply this, that none of us walk or run perfectly or even well most times. But you are doing a work in us. So help us to daily give you simply the space in our lives to do the work that you already have planned. Help us to participate with you as a living sacrifice because in Jesus, I made the ultimate sacrifice. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.